Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm Zoe Griffith. And today we're very happy to welcome to the podcast Dr. Christine Filiou, who is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of California in the very beautiful and sunny Berkeley, California. Um, so Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're really happy to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So today, uh, the subject of our discussion will be um, one of the, the themes of Christine's work, which is the interface between Ottoman and Greek uh, in the early 19th century. And we'll be drawing on Christine's recent book. Um, I still think it's recent. <laughs> it's uh, a few years old now. In, in academic times. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, the book is called Biography of an Empire, Governing Ottomans in an Age of Revolution. And it was published by the University of California Press in 2011. So I thought we could just start by sort of asking you to kind of introduce the the sort of main characters of the book, um, which is this this group or this house that are called the Fenariots, um, which are kind of associated now perhaps with the Fenar uh, district of Istanbul. But but our listeners may not know um, uh, who who they were, when they kind of rose in the Ottoman world, and what were the what were their kind of role in Ottoman governance in the early nineteenth century. Well, Fenariots have a curious history and a set of connotations, I guess. Um, they, the traditional definition of Fenariots is a very small clique of families that rose to power through accumulation of mercantile capital and um, establishing sort of lay households around the Orthodox Patriarchate in Istanbul, which is basically like the Vatican, the headquarters of the Orthodox Church. And so they were sort of an outgrowth of church power and intermediaries with the Ottoman court and involved in sort of provisioning and things like that. Um, very small group, as I said, and in Greek national historiography, it stays at that. They're not considered to be a mass phenomenon. Also in Romanian historiography, um, because this group went and sort of almost colonized um, Romanian provinces of Moldavia and Wallachia for the Ottomans in the 18th century, um, they're seen as being sort of despots, you know, more rapacious than the Ottomans were, right? But still a very small ruling clique of princes um, and their households. Um, what I try to show is that in the second half, and particularly the third quarter of the 18th century, it actually grows into a larger phenomenon through the expansion of the retinues of these princely families. Um, and so we can actually see that these Fenariots, they open schools, which, which is known. They open these academies in the Danubian principalities. So they're training a kind of bureaucracy of their own. They're circulating back and forth between Istanbul throughout the Balkans and into Romania, what's now Romania. Um, and they come to have a disproportionate influence on Ottoman governance um, through their role in as interpreters and negotiators at the Ottoman court, in the border provinces with Austria and Russia, which are the Moldavia and Wallachia. Um, they are involved in grain provisioning. They're um, involved in provincial governance in the Aegean islands under the Ottoman admiral, the Kapudan Pasha. Um, so I, I think what I'm offering here is a sort of the unofficial and much larger role that they played in Ottoman governance than they had been acknowledged for playing to now. Right. And so one of the things that you emphasize in the book, at least, is that, you know, one of the, the big roles that they come to play is this kind of almost like a semi-monopoly over foreign affairs. Um, and so I'm sort of curious, you know, how did they come to have that kind of power? Uh, you know, how did this kind of 
in some ways a group that was not did, didn't come up through the state in a way. How did they come to to, to control this kind of increasingly important piece of Ottoman governance? That's a really interesting question, and one of the reasons I got interested in them actually in that um, it's it's the way they came to power is actually something that can lead us to a larger understanding of how Ottoman governance was evolving in the 18th century. Um, in that. Those that small group, just really one or two in the late 17th, early 18th century, um, had particular expertise. Um, one, Panayotis Nikusios, was trained as a physician in Italy, in Padua, I believe, and was then employed by one of the Köprülü viziers um, for his medical knowledge. And then it was sort of inadvertently discovered that his foreign language skills were very useful in the context of the Ottoman attempt to take over Crete from Venice. Um, and so sort of, it was not spontaneous, but it was a bit of an ad hoc process. And so once um, victory was achieved by the Ottomans, he was bestowed with this title of Dragoman as uh, a sign of gratitude, right? And same with um, Nicholas and Alexander Mavrogordatos, the next phase in this expansion. Um, so it started with specific skills and then foreign language skills and then a patronage relationship to one of the top Ottoman statesmen. And then it became precedent. <laughs> so then it became institutionalized through a number of contingent events like the flight of Dmitry Kontemir um, to Russia. He was one of the local princes in Romania that fled and betrayed the Ottomans, right? So that then turned the Ottomans toward um, a greater trust in these Fenariots that were Istanbul-based. Um, so the Fenariots very, started very much from the outside of power and worked their way in, as opposed to, you know, the counter example is the Janissaries that I use, and that they started at the very core of power as an institution, and then over the centuries kind of bled outward into society, into guilds and, and whatnot, and became this important sort of lobby lobbying group um, in Istanbul and, and throughout the provinces. So, and Ayan also in the 18th century are sort of carrying out this ad hoc um, imperial project within the empire, right? And so all of these groups are dependent on the maintenance of the sultanate, right? The continuation of the sultanate. They're not aiming to destroy it or replace it with their own rule. Um, and yet they are... Um, disaggregating <laughs> the institutional framework of governance as it was before they came to be involved in it, I guess. Right. And so, I mean, it seems like what you're getting at here goes back to one of the things you said earlier, which is that this sort of tells us something about what's happening more broadly to the Ottoman state or to Ottoman governance in the sort of early 19th century pre-Tanzimat period. Um, so maybe, you know, you could just sort of sum up for us, you know, how this is part of a broader set of changes uh, in the nature of the state. Let's see. I guess Ariel Saltzman in her dissertation talked about the privatization of the state through the case of tax farming in Diyarbakir, Malikane, life-term tax farming, um, and that that was very influential for me. And I started, when I read up on these cases, um, it was also the flip side, the, the inverse process is also happening in that society is taking over the state, right? So the state is selling itself off, and these chunks of society or these um, collective actors are um, taking the reins of the state. And so that's all happening as this Nizam Jadid 
project is getting off the ground or not getting off the ground, right, as the case may be. Um, what's interesting about that period, and this is, of course, the, the reign of Selim III is also the moment when the Ottoman um, diplomatic corps comes into being, right? And what is interesting about that is that the role of these Christian elites, right, in that in an earlier period, they would have had to convert to be to really have a share in governance, right? And they even now in this period, they don't officially have a share in governance, but they're coming as close as one could possibly come, right, to um, belonging in the state. And um, they're doing it as Christians and um, there is a tension that is developing. And, and so I feel like this Fenariot example is emblematic of what's happening in the early 19th century because we can start to see um, sort of the three prongs, the three divergent trajectories that are going to take place in subsequent decades of sort of internal reforms, European colonial projects, and Balkan nationalism. And so the Fenariots sit at the crossroads of these three histories and sort of show us <laughs> how they diverge from one another. So you said that, you know, that they're kind of really coming into to being central to the state, if not officially part of the state as Christian elites. I mean, so in your when you were sort of doing the research for this, which, you know, is some years ago, but you probably remember like, you know, what how important was it that they were Christian? Um, and how important was it that they were Greek, especially given that this is the period leading up to Greek independence in 1821? Um, and sort of how much did those identity categories that maybe look important to us as we look back, how much were those actually part of what people were, you know, were people concerned about this? Were they, did the Phenariots themselves identify in these ways? Um, yeah, it was surprisingly important <laughs> that they were Christian and they were Greek. And I, of course, when I started my research, I wanted to believe that, you know, all of our assumptions about the Millet system and about religious difference and prejudice in the Ottoman Empire were false. And I was going to find some sort of egalitarian dream, right? That's not what it was. I found, you know, the Sultan is calling um, these guys Christian swine at certain points. I mean, they're not highly respected. They're, you know, and, and even their work as translators, I found, you know, comments by like Khalid Effendi, right, by Muslim statesmen at the time saying like, well, you know, we Muslims, we don't want to go live in the lands of the Franks for long. We're not cut out for that. It's not comfortable. It's not going to work. So we may as well send these people like they have the languages. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't seen as very prestigious work or, you know, and even though they had a sense that it was um, politically sensitive, um, they didn't necessarily value it. So they there was a trust issue because these were Christians and therefore other, right? a foreign body in a way, right? Um, and yet the urge to replace them with some native, with some Muslim elite did not really happen until the 1820s, which is kind of fascinating. So I love this idea that, you know, a kind of cushy ambassadorial post in, you know, Europe was not prestigious. And this was actually something that people really didn't want to do, you know, live with those kind of those swine or those those heathens. This is kind of changes our our sense of what uh, what the role of diplomatics actually was and what the work looked like. So that's really nice. And the fact that they were Greek, I didn't even address that, but um, there is a longer history going on in the 18th century of, and, and again, this the Greek Orthodox 
population in the empire was not just ethnically Greek or linguistically Greek, as you know, um, but there was a takeover going on in the later 18th century of the Greek um, clique within the patriarchate. And so there was a suppression going on of Slavic interests and higher clergy and things like that. So um, it made perfect sense that these guys would be Greek identified even if not born as Greeks, right? Again, we have to let go of our assumptions about ethnicity. Um, and so there was a social mobility component to if you were going to become a Fenariot, you were also going to become Greek identified. Again, not in the national sense. It's, it's hard to get our heads around this, not in the national sense, but in the sense of having the sensibility and the linguistic knowledge um, and being part of the patronage networks, of course. So that's actually a really good way to get to kind of um, the, the biography that structures the, um, the book, which is, of course, called Biography of an Empire. And, and there is it is built around an actual biography of a particular Fenariot actor whose name I'm probably going to mispronounce, and you can correct me, but Stefanos uh, Vogoridis. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, who, as you describe it, comes from what you call a Hellenized Bulgarian family um, and who becomes active in the Fenariot administrative network in Moldovia, Wallachia, again, probably mispronouncing this, um, in the late 18th century. So I'm curious if you could tell us just a little bit about, let's call him Stefanos. Stefanaki. We could call him Stefanaki Bay. (laughs) (laughs) And and tell us, you know, how he became the focus for your research. Right. Well, it was sort of unlikely in that um, I began actually wanting to research Samos, the island of Samos, which was an autonomous polity um, in the wake of the Greek War of Independence. Um, So it was part of the Greek revolutionary government, the provisional government during the revolution in the 1820s. And then when the final settlement was negotiated at the Treaty of London in the early 1830s, it was left out and it was allowed to be this separate principality modeled roughly along the lines of Moldavia and Wallachia, but in miniature. Um, And so I had gone to Samos because they have the archive of that polity. So I thought that would be a great dissertation topic and a great way of approaching this interface between Ottoman and Greek in this polity that was in between. And what I realized when I got there is that it it wasn't quite as interesting as I thought, mainly because it's a very, it's generally a poor island. Hios or Sakuz would have been more interesting um, because it was very wealthy um, and just had a more diversified economy, but it was, um, they didn't have an archive. It was burned 1822. There was total destruction there. And it was just, it's just not the same kind of archival situation. Um, So Samos was generally poor. It was a lot of brigands, peasants, pirates. Um, It was entirely Christian. There was one kadza that would lit, that he lived across the bay, across the channel in Kushadasa and would like come over during the day kind of thing. So it wasn't really the kind of milieu that I wanted to research. And then I realized that really the power was not in Samos. The power was in Istanbul because the first prince of Samos was Vogoridis. um, And he never, he tried to visit the island once and they tried to kill him and he left. So he, (laughs) so he was was never actually present in Samos. He was an, an absentee prince from Istanbul. And so then it dawned on me that Really, the story was happening in Istanbul if you could rule an island from that distance, right? And then I was told in Samos about the archive in Athens that was uh, included his correspondence with his son-in-law that I used very much for the, for the research of the dissertation in the book. I mean, he's such a fascinating character, and maybe you can, um, having introduced him, talk a bit about the notion of uh, his Greek identity, his Ottoman loyalties. I mean, he was a very complex character and there were 
elements of the time that allowed for that complexity, but they were very historically contingent. So mm -hmm. maybe we can expand his uh, biography, so to speak. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he was a he was an interesting. Uh, kind of an idiosyncratic character, I think, even for the, the his contemporaries, because they've referred to him. I remember seeing an, uh, an Ottoman document toward the end of his career referring to him as um, a Musliman Ruhu, like a Muslim soul. <laughs> um, so he, that I don't think was a normal way to refer to a Christian, right? Um, so he, yeah, he had this upbringing. His, his grandfather was actually a prominent Bulgarian Christian cleric that was an, um, sort of a big figure in the Bulgarian cultural awakening or enlightenment, right? Um, so um, Sofroni Vrachansky, actually. And so he never talks about his grandfather, though, which is interesting. So he's the son of, of a merchant, um, and he gets placed in these academy in one of these academies in Yash in Moldavia um, that are run by the Fenariots through family connections. And so he um, receives a Greek education and changes his name from a Slavic uh, name to a Greek, to the Greek variant of the name, really. Um, and then he sort of enters onto this path toward to Istanbul and um, this education that involves learning multiple languages. Um, he ends up in Egypt um, in the Napoleonic invasion. He sort of is in all the important places that one should be in his generation. Um, and he climbs the ladder of Fenariot um, success uh, until just on the eve of the, Re of the Greek Revolution when he's Kaimakam. So he's not, he also, I guess this, this treatment of Fenariots is unconventional. Firstly, as I mentioned, because I'm looking at it as a, more of a mass phenomenon than in what is traditionally done. And secondly, because he, of all people, is not someone who Greeks would consider a Fenariot. He's not a born Fenariot. He's a self-made Fenariot. He's kind of an interloper as far as these older families are concerned. He marries into these circles of power um, shortly before the revolution. And so he is freakishly well-placed when the upheaval begins, right, to be this kind of wild card. So he could go in either direction. His brother ends up being on the side of the Greek nationalists, right, from Paris. Um, and he chooses to stay loyal to the Ottomans. The problem is most of the documents, most of the sources we have um, of him reflecting on his experience are from the 1850s. So it's hard to know what he actually was thinking <laughs> in the 1820s. And it's really from the late 18, mid to late 1830s, we have at least correspondence. But then the big, the major source that I use to sort of um, map out the whole book, which I offer the document at the beginning as, as this starting point, is written in the early 1850s at the toward the end of his life. Um, well, maybe you could tell us actually a little bit about that document and sort of how, you know, how, how do you read something like that? Because, of course, I mean, we can see that he remains active in Ottoman politics. Um, so you sort of know, you know, what side he ended up being able to be on in a certain way. And maybe we'll get back to that a little later. But, yeah, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you encountered him in this in this document that you offer in the book. Yeah, this document just I couldn't help but I, I, it took me, let's say I read it. And it was such a bombshell that it took me it took me several weeks to decode it literally because it was written in code. And then it just I feel like it took me years to kind of 
come to terms with the fact that this was really the map for the whole book because <laughs> it seemed kind of weird to do a book like that and not to do it along the lines of the existing historiography. So then once I sort of let go of my expectations and just let it lead me, it did kind of lead into this alternative telling of the whole period, right? So he's looking back. So it's on the eve of the Crimean War um, when he's under tremendous pressure. Uh, Orthodox Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire are expected to, to fall in line with Russia, and Russia is claiming to be the protector of those Christians. He, though, is an Anglophile um, and loyal to the Sultan. So he this prompts him to draft this apologia to explain his position and how could one be a good Christian and a loyal subject to the empire in this in this context. And so he he demonstrates it through this really fascinating combination of sort of evoking early Christian imagery of, you know, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, implying that well, saying that even Jesus served a non-Christian king, therefore I can serve a non-Christian king and be the best Christian because there's no better Christian than Jesus, right? <laughs> so he has these fascinating arguments that he lays out. And then he goes through his career and explains all the moments when he stayed loyal to the Ottomans, right? And so it's just, it's kind of a fascinating, it's not even, it's not um, laying out an ideology per se, it's really a kind of worldview or an ex post facto justification for a pragmatic career, because who knows why he was really making those decisions to stay loyal. And his loyalty was, I mean, was accepted by the Ottoman state after 1821. I mean, part of what's so kind of interesting about this story is that, of course, you think, okay, 1821 happens, you know, Greek independence happens. And for someone who had been a fanariot, even though, you know, had a sort of self-made fanariot, um, to still be able to operate in the Ottoman context, you know, in positions of some power um, is actually kind of, uh, you know, maybe not what we would initially think. So, so maybe you could just tell us how does he manage it, do you think? Yeah, again, that we have to sort of deduce. Um, we don't have direct um, evidence. But what I can say from comments that he's made is that I, I think it was an ongoing effort to sort of lobby for himself and convince a number of different constituencies that he was trustworthy. So it involved currying favor with the British, almost more than anyone else because of the role that the British were coming to have in Ottoman politics, um, and with the sultan and the viziers and, you know, with the occasional Russian. At the Patriarchate, he wasn't quite as successful because I think they knew him a little too well. And so there's just so many intrigues going on there. He was not the most popular person there, but he was necessary for the Ottomans, right? Because they couldn't get, they couldn't do away with all Fenariots and all Greeks, right? Um, and we see that, I mean, in the 1820s, they're using him already as a negotiator, apparently. And then as the 1830s open and the foreign ministry takes shape, he's, his skills are still necessary, just as the Fenariots' skills had been before in this new milieu. So um, he's very much about adjusting your language depending on who you're talking to. So I think there was a lot of that going on that enabled him to convince others of his loyalty. Right. He's a smart diplomat. Yes, um, exactly. So, I mean, are there other figures like him? Like, how exceptional is he in sort of this ability to sort of to, to, to sort of stay around after 1821 and to be a kind of Christian Greek power broker? There were a bunch of what we call neo-fenariots that came of age after the revolution. The Karateo, the Reese family, is one big example. 
um, and the Musuroses. Um, he, though, is one of very few that bridged this chasm of before and after 1821. And so that's why I bring up in the, chap the final chapter of the book um, his nemesis, basically, is Aristarchipe, who is another one that bridged um, these two eras. And he was the court favorite, but was a Russophile. So he was Russian aligned as opposed to Stefanaki being British aligned. So um, that is a really interesting starting point for a comparison and contrast because Aristarchibe was more involved in the Patriarchate than Vogoridis was. And he was um, Armenian-ish, right? But Hellenized, right? So it's a different dimension of this um, phenomenon of, you know, Ottoman Christians that had achieved some modicum of power in this period. Uh, that seems like a, a good opportunity to, I mean, you were mentioning before, uh, one of the most interesting things about the Fenariots is that they were so integral to governance and the kind of running of operations during this period, and yet they were not part of the state in any sort of formal way. So I think one of the great interventions of the book um, as you offer is a kind of history of governance in this pre-Tanzimat era. And this might be a good opportunity if we're talking about, you know, how did he survive this moment post-1821 um, leading up to the real kind of formal institution of the Tanzimat in the 1850s? I mean, what are we saying about governance during this period? What do we even mean by kind of Ottoman governance uh, outside of the institutions of the of the state? Uh, well, I do think that this early 19th century is a very unique moment, and I think that that's also what affords me the possibility of arguing that Greek sources used together with Ottoman sources can actually revise our uh, understanding of Ottoman governance proper. Um, I think sometimes people misunderstand and think that, you know, you can take any period and use sources of minority groups in the Ottoman Empire, and that's somehow going to be revolutionary. It's not necessarily. I hate to say it. I wish it was, but it's not necessarily always going to change. It's not always going to be a game changer, right? But in this period, because, precisely because of the unique role that the Fenariots were playing at the very top echelons of power, um, and because of the state of governance, which was disarray, there really was not a blueprint for power, as I say, right? It was this Nizami Jadid, which was reforms of a limited scope and extremely limited um, success, right? And then a cessation or a pause in those reforms in this period of Mahmoud II, which is when most of this takes place. Um, so it's this, um, it is just a very ad hoc, it's a period when um, formal and informal power are barely overlap. <laughs> um, and so as the reform uh, the rubric of reforms becomes more and more robust, let's say, with each iteration of the Tanzimat. These guys kind of lose out, right? Because they're they're flexible and they're um, chameleons in a way, and that's their greatest strength, right? And so when the institutional framework becomes more and more predominant or um, attains more and more capacity to determine like the horizons of um, Ottoman subjects, you know, we always assume that the Tanzimat was go, you know, would is bringing equality and elevating the status of Christians, which maybe it is for some classes of Christians, but for these guys who were already behind the scenes of power, it's actually it, one could argue it's even detrimental to their project, and we see that in the fortunes of their sons of the next generation. So that's really interesting because one of the things you know that's that's rem sort of notable about this work is that it really focuses on the period prior to the Tanzimat, which is 
uh, at least in in my reading, a little uncommon actually um, to put your main focus, you know, prior to the reform decrees. And and what you've offered us is a really good reason why we might want to do that, which is to say that you know some of our conclusions about what the Tanzimat did or was up to. Um, maybe have to be amended if we look at the period directly prior. So, for example, this idea that the Tanzimat was really about elevating, you know, or had the effect of elevating the status of Christians, well, maybe not so much in the case of the, of figures like the Phanariots. So um, I guess my, my sort of broader question is, is what what else do we learn? I mean, so what, what else could we learn from sort of focusing on the pre-Tanzimat period and what what other, you know, sort of kinds of, researches or explorations of that period might me might we want to do I mean yeah one of the other things that fascinates me about that period is that it's a way of tracking the way the the levels of change and the process of change in politics and in governance um, without this European blueprint right because 1839 and even more so 1856 was really this projection of European expectations and norms of governance on and then from that point on it becomes a question of well how much does the reality come to fit that ideal vision right is it successful or not is you know this top-down reform how far does it penetrate and some excellent work has been done on that question I mean Milan Petrov's article um, on the Nizami courts in Rumel in the Danube Vilayet is awesome, and that but it's that's always that's the best way to formulate that question. But it's always going to be that question of like, there's the letter of the law and there's the reality, and what's the gap in between? Whereas before the Tanzimat, you don't you're sort of free from that <laughs> pressure, that constraint. It's just happening. Governance is just happening. <laughs> And it makes it much more complicated as historians to find the patterns because no one's going to tell you what the pattern is supposed to be um, because they were improvising, even under the Nizami Jadid, right? There's, and there's, um, you know, the anxiety about the, the fraying of the social order and the political order and everything. But still, we can try to um, just, it seems to be a much more complex milieu. And for that reason, the possibilities you know, the, the dangers are greater, but the possibilities could also be greater depending on your circumstances. So that's, I still find that period fascinating. And there's, I feel like there's just so much more to be done on it. This is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Well, we will, uh, we'll leave that sort of dangling there for all of our <laughs> listeners who may be embarking on research of their own. Um, I guess that also brings to mind, I mean, the, the sort of form of the book we've talked a little bit about. I mean, it is called Biography of an Empire. Um, it does kind of circulate around the story of this this man, uh, Estefanaki Bey, as we're calling him, <laughs> so I don't have to pronounce the last name. Um, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, perhaps biography is actually a good way then of getting at a period like this where, you know, it's hard to pull out the major questions. It's hard to, it sort of doesn't fit the framework of, you know, what's law, what's reality, or what came from Europe and what came from elsewhere, you know, the kind of questions that maybe are the framework for later on in the 19th century. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit, you know, as we, Zoe and I are both trying to write dissertations, you know, how do you, how did you come to the idea that biography was really the way to do this? And what did it afford you? And maybe sort of what did it make difficult to talk about? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's also something that I, tried to resist for years. Um, I remember giving papers, giving a paper in Istanbul at Sabanja about him when I was, you know, first delving into the material and saying, well, it's not going to be a biography, 
but it's about this, this, and this. And everyone in the audience is like, well, why isn't it going to be a biography? Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. And um, because, you know, biography gets a bad rap, it's often not very analytical. It's just kind of this, um, it's just this episode or it's just a kind of narrative history, the way a lot of maybe British biography, I don't know what, but certain states, it's always sort of a great man biography, right? And so I was hoping to be playing with I think I am playing with the genre I don't think it's a straightforward biography but as you said this because the uniqueness of this period there is no institutional coherence right it's not a period in and of itself necessarily Um, so this is a great way to um, achieve a level of continuity or a level just a, a, a constant against which to measure all these variables that are happening right and all this upheaval and it was just also fascinating to me that through all this upheaval and these different episodes that belong in very different historiographies were lived through and experienced by the same individual <laughs> so that should show us something about history and the way we write it, that it was possible for one person to live this life and have, you know, involvement in all of these seemingly disparate uh, scenes. Right. And we often forget that when we, you know, when we're cutting up periods, you know, of course there were individuals who would have experienced both of these worlds that we're portraying as, you know, very different. For example, I mean, you know, in your case before, after 1821, you know, before, after the beginning of the Tanzimat, this kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. that seems Uh, like a very, you know, kind of interesting way to move forward. I mean, so obviously you mentioned that that biography, it's hard to make it analytical. Um, Sometimes you have to argue for it a little bit more with your audiences. Uh, What, you know, so what did it, I'm curious what it made hard for you to write about or what it made hard for you to see? Yeah, I mean, I guess it it inevitably um, leads to a kind of idiosyncratic story. Um, And so, you know, to what extent did, did, Stefanaki Bay and his actions actually determined the outcome of anything. They didn't necessarily, right? So, and that's, um, I guess that's some criticism that I've gotten for the book, which I think is a compliment, a veiled compliment, but I think it's the people who leveled it think it's a criticism that it's actually, I claim that it's a political history, but it's actually a cultural history, but it's not cultural history done properly, right? <laughs> Which I'm I'm willing to accept that as a badge of honor, right? Right. Whatever that means. Whatever yeah. that means. That you know, I think that um, we need to find ways to synthesize the two, right? That there is certainly there's a process leading to an outcome. I mean, and it's interesting. I don't want to gender everything, but a lot of several male colleagues have who've read my book have said that you know it's interesting that he's a loser. <laughs> And I and I, I love the history of losers. I mean, exactly. Really, I think it's a very like it's a penetrating way to get at questions that people don't want to deal with otherwise. See? I mean, it's like there's this teleological thrust. You only want to write about the things that panned out in the end. It's not. Yes. You can't get the. Full and yet, I think it's gendered because I think I hate to say this, and men out there prove me wrong. Yeah, it, but there's this concern with like, well, who wins, and why would you write a story about the loser? <laughs> I love this. I think we could have a whole like, you know, the, perhaps the Berkeley school or the, you know, like the history of losers, like pass exactly. not taken, you know, the people who kind of like it didn't work out for them. I losers are the most interesting ones to talk to. I hate to say it. <laughs> so, yes, that's so maybe that's maybe we could hard. solicit, you know, things for an edited volume or something. Autobiography. <laughs> Autumn and losers across the <laughs> There were a lot. So we'd have a lot of chapters in that one. <laughs> who was really the winner? I don't know who would be the winners. 
Yeah, it's a really, it's a good question, you know, for all political history. You know, exactly. Who actually wins? Um, so it, maybe we, that's a good time to just tell us what happens to him in the end. I mean, how so he dies. Well, yeah, okay. So we all die. Winners and end. losers die no matter what, right? That's the outcome. But he dies, you know, having achieved quite a lot. He's the first, I believe he's the first um, room representative on the Mejlisi Bala, right? Um, so, you know, it's it's like getting appointed to the Supreme Court, right? Sounds it, it pretty good to me. Sounds pretty good. Of course, by that point, it's just an honorific. It's a, you know, he's like a dinosaur and they appoint him because he's not going to like do anything risque. But the point is, he achieves a large significant measure of esteem on the part of the state um wealth his wealth i mean it's interesting I, he's not like dripping in money in fact at several points he's in debt um and his house burns down and things like that so i wouldn't say he's ever secure um but you know he has his metal his diamond encrusted medals from sultan abdul majid and his portrait of the sultan i mean he has all these these objects that he is extremely proud of and he's married his daughters off well um, sounds like winning to me you know yeah he's winning in his own <laughs> arena <laughs> um sorry I, i'm just thinking of someone else who would like like a diamond encrusted medallion from from the Sultan. I mean, I think all of us and Who probably all of our exactly. listeners. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's. I I don't think he's a, a loser per se. <laughs> just, but it does, you know, it reminds us also that that he's a figure who doesn't, you know, he doesn't fit in in a way to kind of the the sort of normal story that we would want to tell the normal periodization, and that his life actually crosses, you know, so many of these boundaries. And the fact that he's a Greek Christian who ends up getting diamond encrusted medals from the sultan and i guess in the 1850s or later yeah, he got it 1840 yeah yeah in 1850s, so this is i mean it in itself kind of forces us to rethink some of the things that perhaps we thought we knew about how these peri- how this period worked and sort of what the trajectory of minorities in the empire or christians in the empire was yeah i mean if if you think about it all the ottoman christians who stayed in the empire were losers right the winners were the nationalists the brazen you know, ideologues that, you know, broke off and took the risk and they seemed like idiots as they were doing it because who knew that was going to succeed. Right. But but in retrospect, they were the winners, right? Yeah. Although if we had picked, you know, if you picked a moment maybe before the 20th century, you know, that this is, I mean, I'm thinking here of like someone like Michelle Campos's work on minority communities in Palestine that, you know, that they're this vision of a kind of Ottoman empire in which Christians can also be part of a polity, if not part of state power in the same way, kind of does persist actually long after this period. Yeah. And that's what's interesting about the second constitutional period is, you know, as I mean, if you if we if we accept the um, appraisal of the, the Hamidian period as being a pause. Right. And so there's a brief first constitutional period and the second constitutional period as like continuation of that pendulum swing of the Tanzimat that, you know, yeah, there was this brief moment in 1908 when Christians and Jews could have these ambitions and be respected, although it was um, there was an inherent tension there. And you see it with the with the opening page of my book about, you know, the kinds of houses that the Fenariots had. Right. They had these opulent um, residences on the inside and on the outside, they had to be these ramshackle, you know, nondescript, inconspicuous things because they couldn't show well. So there was still, I feel like even in the second constitutional period with claims and hopes for equality on the ground, there were still all kinds of tensions and hierarchies that are 
that we're socioeconomic, confessional, ethnic, right? And we tend, it's, it's easy to forget about those. But you couldn't overstep. I mean, it was very difficult to overstep your station, right? Even yeah, and I think, you know, one of the kind of narratives that we see being pushed now about the Ottoman Empire was that it, you know, in sort of public discourse was that, you know, this this kind of narrative that you mentioned earlier that, you know, these kind of religious and ethnic divisions are kind of the figment of our imagination and that really it was a space of equality and flexibility, but that, you know, even when you do find moments like 1908 or like the life of Estefan Akibe, um, you know, we still have to be, we still have to be historical in noting that, you know, it did matter to be a Christian elite, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he says it in his apologia. He said all those moments when the Ottomans looked askance at a loyal Christian, at the loyalty of a Christian, right? That he knows that it's a challenge to convince them that, that he is indeed loyal, right? And there's skepticism even of him, so... So one of the things that Zoe and I had talked about um, a little earlier that was interesting also about the book in a sort of methodological sense is that this sort of uh, the lens of the household, right, and the kind of Fenariat household. And you you sort of discussed that, you know, this is a wider phenomenon that you want to talk about. But but in the end, I mean, these are the great houses. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, you know, was there any intermarriage? Were these, you know, were these at all interconfessional households or were they, you know, they were all Hellenized and all... Greek Orthodox? Um, well, at the top, they were Hellenized and Greek Orthodox, and um, you could marry up into them. So there were a lot of Romanians, actually. Um, so, so the indigenous elites in Moldavia and Wallachia were intermarrying. And there was a whole middle stratum of Fenariot families in the provinces that were connected, again, through marriage and patronage to this Istanbul set. Um, but could... Um, let's say, rehabilitate themselves in a different set of circumstances when it was a liability to be Greek. So there were people who were Hellenized but could still switch back if they needed to. So I would say a lot of Romanians, um, the odd Bulgarian (laughs) um, flocks, um, some Armenians appear in the the registers that I saw. But all Christian. Um, All Christian, yeah. And even one from Aleppo, there's like a Halepli, Right. So even some Arab Christians, who knows what the circumstances were that allowed that to happen. But, yeah, it's Christian. I'm trying to think. Conversions did happen of some of these Fenariots, some of these Greek, um, for instance, some of the Greeks in the employ of Ali Pasha, who does not figure in the book, interestingly, because he was sort of a separate but related imperial enterprise at the same time, I guess. But he had a lot of Greeks and he was Greek speaking himself. Right. And so you do get some conversion going on there in the course of the Greek War of Independence. Um, But so that, again, I mean, this goes to this point of that there were divisions um, and that, you know, especially on the, if on the level even of the household, let alone of the kind of individual marital relationship or whatever, you know, the sort of um, interconfessional thing is not really happening. I mean, that tells us something about, you know, the kind of power that this was, the kind the ways that money was circulating um, between generations and also, you know, the fact that it did matter, right, to be a Christian elite. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I think that's, you know, that's a, I'm trying to figure out in my own work, you know, sort of how to deal with the fact that there are communities of people who are Christian, and it does seem to matter, right, at least yes. to them, maybe not in a theological sense, but certainly in a cultural or communal sense um, that they are dealing with other Christians. So this this seems like a good uh you know, I don't know how many listeners we have who are not themselves Ottoman historians, but, you know, for people who are invested <laughs> in this view of the Ottoman Empire as a kind of time of sort of 
unbounded flexibility and toleration that this is really not a historical account. Yes, I often tell people because I have met in my travels in Turkey, you know, I've met various Americans or Greek Americans, whatever, who are sort of have caught this bug of, you know, romanticizing the Ottoman past and they want to learn. And so I remember I was having a conversation with one and we were talking about DNA and and she was saying how like, oh, yeah, I'm sure I have tons of Turkish DNA. And I was like, well, maybe not because marriage, intermarriage was happening in one direction. It wasn't happening. It wasn't like Muslims were marrying into the Greek community. It was the opposite. It was Greek Orthodox women could marry Muslims. And even that, like, we don't really understand how and why and how often, you know, and whether that would be approved by the family, by the woman's family or not, or it was coerced. I mean, it was not so flexible and um, fluid as we might assume. So the Turks have a lot of Greek DNA, but I don't think Greeks have a super high amount of Turkish DNA. And I'm not saying that as a nationalist because I'm the antithesis of that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you can edit that out. <laughs> well, we can keep that in. I think that's a that's a good point to make as we uh, as we as we close our episode here, which I think has really I mean, you know, obviously I hope there are many of our listeners who are not Ottoman historians because, you know, we hope that we have somewhat of a, of a broader appeal, but I think that this episode really, you know, I mean, and the book does a lot of work on both levels, right? Because it's sort of also it's about historicizing a kind of popularly held view of the Ottoman Empire that's that's sort of popular now, um, and also about trying to get historians to think a little bit about methodology and sort of how you can use, you know, these smoking gun documents, although God forbid they should be written in code. Um, if I ever find one, I hope it's not written in code, but also using tools like biography um, and like sort of the close reading of texts and thinking about the household um, as as ways of getting out of our typical periodizations um, or sort of methodological fields, you know, I think it's very telling you say, well, I don't know if I'm, you know, some people say I'm cultural history, political history is actually cultural history. I mean, that these bounds are actually um, not as useful for us as they might initially seem. So I think that's, uh, those are really great uh, interventions, hopefully for a broad swath of our listening public. Um, So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been really a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. And for those who want to find out more, um, which I assume is everyone, uh, you can pick up a copy of Christine's book, Biography of an Empire, Governing Ottomans in an Age of Revolution, which was published by the University of California Press in 2011. Uh, Zoe and I will also put together a bibliography for this episode on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Uh, we invite all of our listeners to leave comments and questions. Um, please also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of now over 20,000 listeners, post news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. Take care.